Okay, we are live. We are finishing chapter 49, page 630. Quick recap. We spoke about Tsimtsum last week. God hides himself. And the reason why God hides himself, the reason why God employs Tsimtsum is so we can exist. If God didn't hide himself, there would be no space for us. We'd be over, our existence would be outshined by him, for lack of better words, would be overwhelmed by him. So what he does is he makes himself look like he's not here. That's the symptom, him hiding himself. Now there's space for us to exist. Now let's look at this from a relational perspective. Let's look at the relationship of symptom. God is willing to set himself aside so we could exist. And the author of the Tanya urged us to meditate on this and think about what we can do, how we can reciprocate. Recipro reciprocate. Okay, who could help me out here? Reciprocate. There we go. How we can reciprocate. Reciprocate. It's COVID. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> how 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 can we reflect that back to God? How can we put ourselves aside to allow Him in our lives? He sets Himself aside so we can exist. How do we set ourselves aside so He can exist? Now what we get to at our chapter is that our chapter is going to go through some of the prayers in the Siddur, showing how the structure of davening is actually a meditation to help us develop this, to help us develop this love, right? And it starts with the center of prayer. There's a lot of components of prayer and there's a, there, and you know, the, the structure of the Siddur itself is a, is a fascinating discussion, but the pinnacle of, of prayer, there are two pinnacles of prayer and one of which are the Shema, right? If you had the opportunity just to say one prayer, the Shema is the biblical obligation. The Shema declares God's unity. Despite my, despite symptom, which means despite my ability to see God, he is one. And we say here, O Israel, let's internalize this. What do we say right after the Shema? You should love the Lord with all your heart. Let me think about the reality of God's oneness. Let me love him. Right? As a prelude to this, for this love to be meaningful, or this love to be genuine, there are two blessings we recite before the Shema. So the structure of the of the of the sitter, the way the structure of the sitter works, is before the Shema we have two long blessings. If you have a sitter handy. Feel free to look at it. If you don't, it's not a big deal. We're not going to be doing too much in text in the sitter, but it, it is good to know. So if you have 
Um, if you have this blue sitter handy with you, pull it out. If you don't, don't worry about it. The blessings of the Shema, in other words, blessings, there are two long blessings that precede the Shema. It goes from page 39 up until the Shema, which is 42. So three or four pages of blessings that precede the Shema. Now, if you read the contents of those blessings, they have nothing to do with Shema. They have absolutely nothing to do with the Shema prayer. Zero. Why are they referred to as the blessings of the Shema? Why are we reciting these blessings before the Shema? What is their connection? And why are they called the quote-unquote the Shema blessings? They have nothing to do with the Shema. The truth is, they overtly, if you look at the text, it may seem that it has nothing to do with the Shema, but it has everything to do with the Shema. Because it's actually a meditation. The, the, the structure of the sitter is actually a guided meditation to help make the Shema more meaningful. And when we read through these blessings, we're not going to read through all the blessings today, but you're welcome to. When you do read through those blessings, what it should give you is context to make the Shema more, more meaningful. Relational context. The first, blessings, uh, the first blessing of the Shema <laughs> let me take a step back. Before we talk about the blessings of the Shema, I'd like to, again, quickly reflect on the Shema prayer itself. We say, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. What do we say afterwards? You should love the Lord your God. And there are three steps in this love, three levels of love. With all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. Right? There are three things that tend to get in the way of relationships. And they tend to get in the way of our relationship with God. But if we employ, or if we experience this these three levels of love, we're fine. We'll be good. Love God with all your heart. Which heart are we talking about, by the way? Um, this is an example, by the way, of where you should never trust translations. Isn't this both of your hearts? Exactly. The text, the, the English they wrote with all of your heart, but if you translate it literally, it's not grammatically correct, but if you translate it literally, it says all of your hearts, plural. Because it's referring to the heart of both inclinations, the positive and the negative, the divine soul and the animal soul. So levavacha is plural? Yeah, if it was singular, it would have been libcha, one bet. Two bets make it plural. And the Talmud says it's referring to two different hearts that we have, right? We have two different sets of emotions from the animal soul and from the divine soul. It's important that prayer, it's very easy, by the way, for prayer to be relevant to your divine soul. Um, it should be relevant. It should be natural to your divine soul. If you could make prayer enjoyable and meaningful and inspiring to your animal soul, then you really understand it and you're really, it's, it's real, right? There, I, I've 
told this story in the past, but I'm going to say it again because I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite stories. There was a chassid of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. His name is Rabbi Gershon Bear. Rabbi Gershon Bear was a scholarly person, a learned person. And he used to pray. Uh, his prayers were very inspirational. He was, he was very inspired when he prayed. And he had a habit of praying in Hebrew and translating the Hebrew into Yiddish. Now, there are certain points in prayer, certain segments of prayer, where we avoid unnecessary interruption. Sometimes you see someone go, oh, 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 right, and they don't talk. There are certain segments in prayer where we avoid unnecessary interruption as to not, um, as to not disrupt the momentum of those segments of prayer. So he went to ask his rabbi, does translating the prayers into Yiddish, when I'm already saying it in Hebrew, does that warrant an interruption or not? Is that, inter is that considered an interruption or is that acceptable? Am I ruining the momentum or not? So he said, Rabbi Gershon, I don't understand. You know Hebrew. Why would you need to translate it into Yiddish? He said, yeah, my divine soul knows, knows Hebrew, but my animal soul knows Yiddish. And I want my prayers to talk to both of them. Yiddish was his, was his mother tongue. Um, it, it, and that's exactly what the Shema is. Love God, not just with your heart, but both your hearts. Okay, this, there's a second level of love with all your soul. Right? Sometimes, you know what your soul means, by the way, in this context? Your drive. What does it mean to, to sacrifice your soul? Soul sacrifice or self-sacrifice. It means to sacrifice your drive. I'm driven toward Diet Coke, although I'm not right now because I can't taste it. Um, I'm driven toward whatever it might be in life. We all have our, our things that drive us. Can I love God with my drive? And then finally, with all of your might, love God with all of your might. With all of your strength. The Talmud translates this as your money. The Hebrew word for one of the Hebrew words that can be used for money and the Hebrew word for might are interchangeable, are similar words. So love God with your money. That's one of the hardest things to part with. These are three things. Our heart, our drive, our um, security, financial security or otherwise, that can really help a relationship or get in the way of a relationship. And we try to love God with all of them. That requires symptom, setting ourselves aside, right? But to, now, by the way, I'm gonna be a little bit vulnerable here. I don't, we, we just gave a whole five, 10 minute explanation on three words of the Shema. <laughs> on the first two lines of the Shema. I, I, I don't promise you that that's what's going through my head every single day, every time I say the Shema, unfortunately. Maybe once in a while, maybe elements of those ideas. Um, what, and, and the reason why I say that is in order for this to actually be meaningful, to be more on the forefront of our minds, it's important that the, we have the meditation of the blessings of the Shema that precede it. Because the blessings of the Shema that preceded, which we're going to briefly 
discuss, give us incredible context to understanding the spiritual geography of where God and I, I and us stand. Make sense? Okay, everybody with me? Okay. Yes. Except for Mike. <laughs> okay, we won't take it personal. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, Let, let's dive right in. Let's start with blessing number one. We uh, briefly quoted on page 632. Please look on page 632. Um, let's start with the first bold, uh, second bold paragraph of the page. It's third paragraph of the page, the third line of the page. Um, and the sages were concerned. How could a human being, how could man who is sensuous, I pronounce that right? Sensuous, there we go, come to such a state where he lets go of attachment distract, uh, to distraction, distractions that are naturally bound to his heart? How can I love God with all my hearts, all my soul, all my might? I'm a human being and I'm born into a corporal body. And until I'm learning this for the first however many years of my life, that's been my life. So how could I be expected to forgo all of that for the love of God? How could I be expected to genuinely recite the Shema and mean it? Not just be lip service. Okay. So let's look at the next paragraph. To assist in this task, the sages introduced two blessings before the Shema. And these two blessings before the Shema, if you have the sitter, I'm just going to reference them. Blessing number one is the middle of page 39. And it goes until the uh, page 41. It ends at the, first, at the first paragraph, the end of the first paragraph. Blessing number two, the next paragraph on 41 up until 42. Okay. The first one is, blessed are you God who forms light. It's a long blessing, and it's a very mysterious blessing, right? Where we say, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. What are we describing in this blessing? In this blessing... Among the many things we are describing is how the ministering angels up in heaven praise God. Which gives incredible insight and context to our relationship. Because it, it's hard to understand how great God is. But if you could appreciate how the angels understand how great God is. That, it gives us some sort of frame of reference to appreciate our relationship with God. Right? It's like you've never tasted Diet Coke, but you hear Rabbi Josh raving about it. There, there's some sort of context to what it's like. So these angels are raving about God. And by the way, to hear how they rave about God is pretty fascinating. We'll get in there, we'll get there in a second. But to hear how the angels rave about God, wow, there must be something here. 
you know, when, when somebody, when a human being has their opinion on God, you know, you want to be a little cynical. You don't believe in God. Well, have you seen him? How do you, how do you not believe in him? You don't think God is good or you think God is this. You think God is that. You've never seen him. How do you know? Right? An angel has a little bit more because they're in a, a higher world. Right? Remember the various worlds we discussed, the various dimensions of awareness and clarity where symptom is less um, present. They're able to appreciate God on a much more surreal level. Right? Everybody with me? Yeah. Make sense? Let's look at it inside. Right? And, and we go through this every morning just to experience, wow, this is how the angels praise God. Imagine what my relationship with God is like. It gives me some sort of, imagine how great God really is. Um, take a look at the next bold paragraph, please. It's the second to last of the page. It's like a kind of a square on 632. For in the text of this blessing, the phenomenon of the angels and their lineup quote, standing at the heights of the universe is described and elaborated at length to convey the greatness of the Blessed Holy One, how the angels are all overwhelmed by his light and proclaim aloud with awe and sanctify and exclaim with awe. So here's what the angels exclaim. This is how they praise God. They say, holy, holy, holy is God. You know what holy means? In Hebrew, we say kadosh or sacred. The word holy means separate, right? The, whenever, uh, some, how do you know if something is sacred? If it has good boundaries. How do you know if, sir, let me put it this way. How do you know if something is holy, if it has sacred boundaries, right? Relationships, by the way, a marital relationship in, in biblical Hebrew is referred to as holy because it has sacred boundaries. Right? They're not open to everybody. They're monogamous. And therefore, they're holy. They're separate. They're exclusive. The angels are calling God holy. Holy meaning that he is separate from them and does not become palpably enmeshed with them. So this is just, a, this is fascinating. You have these angels who are in a state of uh, deep awareness they're praising God and they have some sort of feeling, some sort of hunch of, of God's greatness. And what they're saying is God is separate from us. We don't get it. He's way above our heads. If an angel proclaims God is above their head, how high, how lofty, how sacred is God really? Perhaps beyond what our own minds can even fathom. Because an angel who can fathom God perceives God as way above them. For us, where we can barely fathom God, for sure, we perceive God as way above us, exalted. Right? Take a look at the next paragraph. This is the process of how the angels praise God. And we recite this every, every morning to give us this context. Bottom of 632, the next bold paragraph. 
Nevertheless, unlike the heavens, which are separate and removed from God, the angels recognize that on the contrary, all the earth, 633, is filled with his glory. The earth referring specifically to the source of souls, Knesset Israel and Israel below. The angels realize, despite how sacred God is, how, high, how lofty and exalted he is. That doesn't mean he's, um, he's separate from the world in terms of their ability to perceive him, but not in terms of how present he really is and how relevant he really is. Let's take a look at the next set of angels that praise God. The next bold paragraph. The angels known as Ofanim and then angels known as Holy Hayot, which there's a highest, there's a whole discussion on why they have those names and what that represents. And we'll have to share that for another time. With a mighty noise, they offer praise and they say, blessed be the glory of God from his place. Which again, expresses their distance from God. They don't know where he really is. They just speak of his place. And they similarly say, for he is alone, exalted and holy. The angels, so that, that's blessing number one of Shema. That's the gist of blessing number one of Shema. <laughs> Context to how angels can praise God and how, can, how, and how we can perceive him. You know, Rabbi, there's a story with Rabbi um, Shalom Dovber of Lubavitch. He was known as the fifth leader in the Chabad movement. And when he would pray and he would get to blessing number one, which we kind of just briefly went through, he would say, wow, I'm envious of these angels. I really am. I'm envious of these angels, the perception of God that they have. And even then, whatever they know, they don't really know anything, right? So what do we know? He says their perception of God is just incredible. He says, I wish I had that. I'm envious of them. And then he would get to blessing number two, which we're about to touch upon. I'm not jealous of them at all, he would say. <laughs> I'm very proud to be a Jew. I'm so lucky to be who I am. And you'll soon see why as we get into blessing number two. Blessing number two in the sitter, it goes from page, the second paragraph on page 41. Okay, let's take a look at the bottom of 633. The bottom, the last bold paragraph. Everybody with me? Any questions, comments, thoughts, commentaries? Controversy? No. Okay. We're all good? We're all in the boat? We're all in the ark? Okay. Yeah. Okay, awesome. 633, the last um, two lines of the page. And then we lead to the second blessing. The second blessing is called a worldly love. It begins with the words, with a worldly love, you, 634, have loved us, God, our God. God loved us with a worldly love. We spoke about the worldly love before. What does a worldly love mean? Despite how great God is, despite how exalted he is, even the angels who have some sort of limited perception perceive him as exalted and separate yet god loves us in this lowly world it's a worldly love 634 the top implying 
that God disregarded the entire brigade of supernal holy angels, and he caused his presence to rest on us, to be called our God, as in the phrase, the God of Abraham, as mentioned above. This is where Rabbi Shmuel, of, uh, sorry, Rabbi, Rabbi Sheldon Dover of Lubavitch said, I'm not jealous of the angels anymore. <laughs> despite the angels' perception of God, despite the clarity they have, to some degree, and despite our lack of clarity, us being in this physical world, God loves us. This is where he chose to direct his love to. He chose to have a relationship with us, not the angels. The, again, the Hebrew word for world, olam, can also mean concealment. We are in this concealed world, this world that conceals God, and yet God still chooses to love us. And by the way, for God, this love comes with a sacrifice. He has to hide himself so we can exist, so he can love us. If he didn't hide us, he couldn't, we wouldn't exist. He wouldn't love us because we wouldn't be here for him to love. So, so the question is, it does it, he's not concealed for the angels. They, he's, he's open and then they, therefore, you know, because then why do we compare ourselves to angels? Right. He, he, I would say he's less concealed to the angels. So, but why do we compare ourselves to the angels? Because we're not angels. Just to give context to the relationship. Despite okay. us not being like angels, not having yeah. the same perception, he still loves us. Okay. And he still chose us. Who did he give the Torah to? Right? He chose to give the Torah. He, gave the, he chose to give the Torah to us. The Talmud actually tells a story that when Moses went up to Sinai to get the Torah the angel said, God, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm giving the Torah to Moses. And the angel said, well, why wouldn't you give it to us? Aren't we your lofty, supernal, holy beings who actually get you, who understand divinity? And the God said, Moses, you need to defend yourself. They have a pretty good point. This is what the Talmud says. And Moses said, okay, um, the Torah says, believe in God. Do you guys ever have doubts? Angel said, no. Hmm. Okay. The Torah says, don't commit idolatry. Idolatry, sorry. Are you ever tempted to bow down to an idol? They said, what's an idol? Okay. And Moses goes through the Ten Commandments, right? The Torah says, honor your parents. Do you have parents? The Torah says, honor relationships. Do you have relationships? And Moses goes through the Ten Commandments and shows how basically the Torah is irrelevant to the angels. Yes, they have, they have the clarity, but what they don't have is a physical world that they could refine. The, the content of the blessing, of this second blessing, which by the way, I, for me, it's one of my favorite prayers. One of my favorite prayers that I recite every day throughout the whole sitter is this second blessing. I just, I absolutely love it. I really do. Um, there's so much meaning to it. Even just the simple text is really meaningful. But there's so much depth to it. And it's beautiful. And we're describing how God loves us. Like a parent figure. 
and how he decided to give us the Torah and how he chose us from all the nations of the world. He chose us from all of the other beings, right? He didn't chose the angels to be his nation. Now, when we think about all of this, when we have a meaningful meditation throughout these two blessings, basically throughout 39, page 39 to 42, then we say the Shema. What is our Shema going to be like? How genuine, how meaningful will our Shema prayer be? Very meaningful. Because now when I say, here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, I have some context to understanding what his unity means. When I say, love God with all your heart, all your soul and all your might, I have some context to who this God is that I am loving. And I have some context to understanding how much he loves me. Despite my limited tunnel vision of him. Make sense? Yes. <laughs> In other words, the Shema is the reciprocation of the blessing that precedes it. The blessing that preceded the Shema is describing how God loves us and how God chose us. Right? On page 41 to, to, uh, to 42. The Shema is us describing, is us reciprocating and saying how we love God. And if we love God, we can't let it stop there. We have to take it on to the next level, to the next step. After love, what's the next logical step in a relationship? Marriage. Okay. Commitment. Good. Commitment. Okay, good. Let let's keep keep going. There's marriage. There's commitment. But let's let's keep going. Even more practical. Family. Okay. Keep going. I'm, I'm be a little bit more general. The word I'm looking for, and what you guys are saying is not incorrect, but the word I'm looking for is action. Right? If love remains passionate, it becomes self-centered. It becomes about how I feel and how, what I want to experience. It doesn't actually be, have anything to do with the relationship anymore if it stays in the realm of passion, if it doesn't come into the realms of action. And that's why right afterwards in the Shema, where it says, love God with all your hearts, all your soul, all your might. What is the very next thing it says? Perform these commandments. Study the Torah, don the tefillin, and various other commandments as well. Because if I really love God, I want to be intimate with him. I want to embrace him. And that's through mitzvahs. I want to become one with him. And that's through studying the Torah.
Take a look on page 636, please. Um, page six, 630, uh, actually, sorry, bottom of 635, the last paragraph of 635. Now, the last bold paragraph, right? Now, when, in, in, when any intelligent person will impress these words upon the depths of his heart and mind, then instinctively, as water, as in water, face reflects face, his soul will be ignited and he'll infuse with a generous spirit to willingly disregard and relinquish, relinquish everything that is his. You'll, nothing will get in the way of this relationship. When a relationship is reciprocal, it, it, it's hard to obstruct it. We do crazy things for love. And it's no different in our love with God. By top of 636, and you'll want to be devoted only to connect to God and be absorbed in his light with attachment and fervor, etc., with the intensity of kissing and merging the spirit of spirit as mentioned above which means Torah study. Being face-to-face -face with God means studying his Torah, right? This, this is a, an important lesson here, by the way. We often view Torah study as a way to better understand how to perform Judaism, and it's true. That is one reason why we study Torah, right? You gotta know how to, how to be a Jew. But it's more than that. The knowledge itself, literally just the study itself, you're studying God's values. You're studying God's mindset, his will, his desires. Take a look at the next bold paragraph down uh, right under section four. But since Judaism demands worldly activity, how is this merging of spirit of, with spirit achieved, practically speaking? To explain this, the next verse of the Shema states in these words, the Torah shall be on your heart and you shall speak of them, etc. Right after the Torah says you should love God, it says speak words of Torah. Action. Intimate action. After intimate passion comes intimate action. The end of the chapter goes full circle. Let's take a step back. In chapter 35 through 37, maybe even 38, we deeply emphasized the value of action over passion. How action is the bottom line of why God created the world, right? You can go to heaven and still have passion. You can't have action. You could only do action in this physical world. And this physical action that we do and when we do mitzvahs physically impacts the world, makes God's presence more physically um, revealed. Then basically through chapter 38, 39, up until now 
we spoke a lot about passion. Despite the uh, purpose being pa action, passion is crucial. Because passion makes it genuine, passion makes it real. Passion is a part of the revelation of God. And we spoke about reverence. We spoke about love. We spoke about various meditations to experience reverence and love and gavan and all these different things. And now we're saying we're going full circle. Back to passion. Because yes, we back to action. Sorry. Yes, we need passion. We need love. We need this relationship to be deep. We need this relationship to be meaningful, to be intentional. But the natural result should be action. which means I should actually articulate the words of Torah that I'm studying or the prayers that I'm saying, because that's what makes this world physically part of God. This is the ultimate purpose. Take a look at the bottom of 639. All the way in the bottom, the last bold paragraph. For this elevation of the physical world is the purpose for which the entire chain of worlds was created. The entire, all of the heavens and everything was created for action in this physical world. So God's glory should fill all this earth, in particular, in a palpable way, with darkness transformed to light and bitterness to sweetness, as mentioned above at length in chapters 36 and 37. Take a look on 640, please. For this is man's purpose and the goal of his worship to pull the blessed infinite light down here. Right? We need passion to instigate that. I don't know if that's the right word. We need passion to make that more meaningful and to inspire that. But it all boils down to action. And that's right, right after the Shema where it says, love God with all your heart, soul, and might. It gives us uh, um, active instructions, activity instructions. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> 